Trudy Morgan Cole, and this is Shelf Esteem, the podcast where I talk to interesting people about books that they find interesting. In this month's episode, I'm going to be wrapping up a three-part series. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that for the last couple of months, I've been using the podcast to celebrate, I guess, sort of the birthday of my uh, favorite fictional character, Lord Peter Whimsey from the Dorothy L. Sayers mystery novels. And uh, as the first uh, Lord Peter Whimsey book came out in 1923, I thought it would be fun to take some episodes in 2023 to celebrate those books that I love so much. So over the past two episodes, and do go back and listen if you haven't, I have uh, chosen someone as a guest who has never read one of the Lord Peter Whimsey novels and uh, asked them to read one and swapped it with a book of their recommendation. And then we talked and made, made some comparisons about the books and had a really great conversation. I thought to wrap up this little mini series, I would find someone who rather than being a uh, complete newcomer to the world of Dorothy L. Sayers novels, uh, like my last two guests, was someone who uh, loved them and had read them as much as I had. And that uh, can be a challenge sometimes because I'm an avid reader of those books and have reread them many times. But it turned out there was someone in my circle of acquaintances who loves those books as much as I do and has also reread them multiple times. And I'm very glad to have that person as my guest for this episode. Martha Musichka works in communications, research, and strategic planning. She is, on top of that, a woman of many talents and, of course, an avid reader. And when I found out that Martha loved the Lord Peter Whimsey novels as much as I did, of course I couldn't resist getting her in to have a conversation about them. And so began the conversation by just asking her to talk a little bit about her love for those novels. I will just say before we get started that I always try to be pretty careful about spoilers, especially when we're discussing mystery novels. And in both of the last two episodes, we've put in a spoiler break so that you know that after a certain point, we're going to talk about the ending and how the mystery is resolved. In this episode, I haven't put in a spoiler break and we have not uh, discussed in detail uh, the outcome or solution of any of the mystery plots as we're talking about the series in a more general way. There are minor spoilers, I guess, in this episode, not for the solutions of specific mysteries or the ending of specific books, but for talking about things that happen in the lives of the characters and relationships. Nothing more spoilery than you would get by picking up a copy of one of the books and reading the back cover blurb. But just just a little awareness of that, that we don't put a spoiler break in this one and we don't give away the solutions to any of the mysteries, but we do talk in a kind of wide-ranging way about the characters and what happens to them throughout the series. And with that out of the way, let's get going with my conversation with Martha Musichka. Welcome, Martha, and thank you for being here today. Thank you, Trudy. It's always a pleasure. And I know you've been a guest on the podcast before. I invited you back this time specifically because I'm wrapping up this series on the Lord Peter Whimsey novels by Dorothy Sayers, and I know that you, like me, are a longtime fan of those books. Oh, absolutely. I uh, probably try to reread them now every couple of years simply to delight and the beauty of Dorothy Sayers' writing, as well as her very deft plotting. Yes, and I think that's the same for me. Probably every couple of years I end up rereading, and sometimes I'm just like, I'm just going to dip in and reread one of the books, and then I end up rereading the whole series, because I have to immerse myself in it again. Oh, it's definitely like popcorn. You can't stop. Yeah, you can't stop. So what was your first introduction to, to this series? When and under what circumstances did you meet Lord Peter Whimsey? Well, it was 1977. My dad used to take students to Spain. Uh And of course, the students would always have books and I would have books and we would trade the books. And the previous year to 77 is how I got introduced to Agatha Christie, Mm -hmm. because there were a number of fans. Anyway, one of the students had a paperback copy of the collection of short stories. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by how she told the story. And of Uh course, at the beginning of the book, there's a list of other novels and books that Dorothy Sayers had written. So I came back and I went to the public library and lo and behold, they had copies of Dorothy Sayers. So I dutifully plied my card and withdrew whatever was available. 
and uh, off we went. So yeah, 77, 78 was when I really got into reading Dorothy Sayers. Yeah, so it would be similar for me uh, in that I, I I think it was 1982, and I was also you know a young reader. I was a teenager at the time, uh, so I think we probably both got introduced to them at a very formative uh, period of life. Now, having read the short stories and then gone to the library of what they had, were you able to read the series in order from there? Like, did you oh, start no. with Whose Body and No? You read them Not all out at of order. all. They were all out of order, so it was a bit disconcerting. You know, a couple of books in. Uh, because they were among the first that I had read to discover that Lady Mary had married, you know, Lord Peter's policeman. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, when did that happen? <laughs> and I think I had read Have His Carcass mm-hmm. when, and then saw, oh, what's this thing about, you know, Lord Peter and who's this Lady Harriet and all <laughs> that sort of stuff. So once I managed to get my hands on all of them and then acquired my own copies, then I read them all in order just mm. to make all the pieces fit. I think my experience was similar. I know that the first one I read was Gaudy Night, which is a really strange place to come into the series, but I think it's the reason I loved it so much and it remains one of my favorite favorite books of my life because it is such a great love story. And of course, it was wrapping up a love story that had been introduced in two previous novels that I hadn't read. And for a long time, the only four of the series I'd read were the four with Harriet in them, Strong Poison, Have His Carcass, Gaudy Night, and Busman's Honeymoon. And I was kind of like, this is the only part of the story I'm interested in. And then, of course, eventually I branched out and read the earlier books and was like, oh, yes, Lord Peter was interesting even before he met Harriet Vane. But, of course, I knew the outcome of the love story because I read the, the book in which they finally end up getting engaged first. So, yeah, I also had that experience of, of reading them out of order. It was really interesting looking back and thinking about your questions and coming on the show to talk about, you know, why I enjoy these books mm. so much and why I choose to reread them as opposed to other books, which I equally enjoyed because mm-hmm. they're yeah. deaf plotting and good writing. But there's something very appealing about how Dorothy Sayers actually has her character grow and change. Yes. You know, yeah. some mysteries, you know, I like Agatha Christie, but Hercule Poirot was the same stuffy little, you know, <laughs> He's neurotic. the same pure Poirot the first time as, as the last time. Exactly. And you kind of see some change a little bit, but not so much with Miss um, Marple. But most of the time, the stories stay stuck or mm-hmm. there's very limited growth because of the way the author launched. Uh, I'm thinking of the Alphabet series by Sue Grafton. Oh, yes. And yeah. in fact, she had a very tight timeline mm-hmm. in the books, but in actual fact, her publication, her outputs, uh, the timing outstripped. So at some point in the 90s, you were reading about the early 80s, which was really kind of incongruous. Yeah. Whereas I liked what happened with Lord Peter, and you become to to see him with his faults, Mm -hmm. but also with his values and Mm. why in some ways uh, he would not have been suited as the Duke. Um, Yeah. And uh, and why he resisted that uh, position of power, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think there's a comment in Busman's Honeymoon where... The Dowager Duchess says, you know, Lord Peter had had to make so many decisions and give so many orders yes. during the war that when he came back, he simply couldn't do any mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And that idea of having to make decisions that had such momentous outcomes, mm-hmm. if you made the wrong one, um, you could see how that those early discussions of shell shock and reflecting on some of the changes in society, even when you think about murder must advertise, mm. the whole concept behind marketing and people having to go to work and where he essentially goes, spoiler alert, undercover, <laughs> uh, to, to be a working person. Which is the only time he's ever had to do that in his life as, yeah. as the son of a duke, yeah. So, whereas, you know, you see him dabbling, and I think there was an early point in maybe it was Whose Body or Clouds of Witness, where his curiosity and his, you know, pokiness, you know, how do drains work? Mm, yeah, he's interested in everything, yeah. 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 So it's, he's, he's like a really interesting character, and you yeah. could see having 
I don't know if you could have a drink with him at a pub, but you <laughs> certainly could, you know, sit down at his club, perhaps, if they allowed women in in those days, <laughs> yeah, and have a drink and, and a talk about stuff. I mean, he liked books. He liked art. He mm-hmm. was into wine. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not much into horses. No. But, you know, he seemed to be good on his feet as a dancer and mm-hmm. also as a fencer so he's astonishingly well-rounded but but he does you know and he i feel like he would almost be a caricature of this you know wealthy well-connected young man who is brilliant and can do everything but then he does have the dark side and you do get that even in the first book in whose body you have him as this sort of light funny amusing detective and then he basically has a breakdown right before solving the case yep. because of that old question of responsibility and and making life and death decisions, you know, which is how, I guess, what today we would call his PTSD from the war manifests that he... And and that does, even though he does change and grow as a character, that does carry through right even to the last book because even in Busman's Honeymoon, Mm -hmm. he has a bit of a breakdown when the prisoner is going to be executed, the man that he has condemned because of his testimony. So that's... You know, you see, I guess he ages about 15 years over the course of the novels, because I feel like he's in his early 30s when they start and his mid-40s when they end. They talk about his age between 45, 48, yeah. an allusion to, you know, that he was an older guy to have gotten married. Of yes, course, yeah. it wasn't seen quite as negatively as the idea of... Uh, you know, Harriet no. being in her 30s and having had a relationship. Yes, and, she's, ooh, she's already been with a man. <laughs> and, you know, which was a very, a very good discussion in Strong Poison about yes. how to, she, she was so affronted mm-hmm. when her lover, you know, then says, well, if you, if you want to leave, I'll marry you anyway. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you didn't want to marry me before. So, you know, yeah. Too bad. The the double standard, and I know we're jumping around in the books, but I mean we're we're coming to this both as 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 lovers of the books, uh, but the double standard in relationships between men and women in terms of sexual experience at the time, which is less a thing now than it was then, but still kind of is a thing, is is really it's very explicit in Strong Poison when when Harriet says to Peter, you know, when she when he impulsively proposes to her while she's still on trial for the murder of her lover, he she says, wouldn't you mind? the fact that I'd had a lover before. And he says, oh, but so have I. I've had tons of them. I can give you references if you want. Uh, And of course, she points out that's a very, you know, in their culture, that's a very different thing. A man of his age and status is expected to have had lots of lovers before marriage and maybe some after. But the wife would still be expected to be to be virginal. Oh, absolutely. And to remain, you know, virtuous and true to the marriage vows, regardless mm-hmm. of, you know, perhaps the circumstances mm-hmm. inherent in the relationship. And I'm thinking also in Busman's Honeymoon, there's um, the relationship between, there's one who has a relationship with an elderly spinster. Who oh, yes. Has her hands. Frank Crutchley and, and Aggie Twitterton. Yeah. That, yeah. And, you know, you see how relationships between older women and younger men were seen as something that would be mocked and would need to be kept secret. Yeah, it's laugh. It's considered laughable in the community. Yeah. yeah. And so you see those things, you know, the the whole to-do about, you know, Lady Mary wanting to marry the policeman. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when Peter's older brother ends up in the dock mm-hmm. um, and, you know, his wife Helen is, you know... <laughs> A really, really twitchy type of person who, you know, flinches at any violation of yes, the public she's, moral she's code. So, yeah, she's so correct and so proper. I think Helen is a great character because she's so awful. And I think it's one of the things I love with this series is that not just Lord Peter and eventually Harriet are such well-fleshed-out and developed characters, but also all the minor characters, all the side characters are just so, you know, richly developed. You get developed. insights, and there's one... I think it's one of the short stories where they're trying to find um, a spy and the it becomes evident and is revealed at the end of the story that the Dowager Duchess had been looked after by a man in disguise as a woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the salaciousness of that. <laughs> but how she thought that was just an absolute hoot. And Helen was like, you know, <laughs> yeah. all prunes and prisms, as they say. And the Dowager Duchess was kind of like, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. Dowager Duchess, uh, Peter's mother, is just such a great character, too. She's she's so, you know, I, I love the way Sayers writes her really uh, daffy stream of consciousness, both thoughts and dialogue when she's speaking aloud. And yet 
she's really, really smart, even though she, you know, appears to be completely scatterbrained and is very scatterbrained when she's talking, but she's also just incredibly insightful and wise. I often wondered if Sayers actually created the character in that way because she couldn't reveal a whole lot about the relationship because then you're just going too far down a rabbit hole, if you will, Mm -hmm. of her relationship with the Duke Mm -hmm. and then how, you know, she came to be. And I often wonder if she was always that cute and witty and, uh, you know, kind of knowing how far to push some things, partly because she couldn't have done it, Mm -hmm. you know, as the Duchess. Mm -hmm. But once he had died... She had uh, some freedom, you know, like, yes, oh, poor yeah. thing. She's gotten a bit dotty since, you know, the <laughs> former Duke died and all yes, that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, one of the things that I think for people to really take away from Dorothy Sayers is the quality of her writing mm-hmm. and how she describes the relationships, the situations. Um, you know, in actual fact, the murders, when they happen... They're not really those sort of uh, psychotic or um, greedy. Some of them are just like people forced into making horrible decisions. Yeah. Now, I will say the exception is strong poison because it was pure greed oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, at play in that. But uh, she didn't put things as utterly black and white. Mm-hmm. This person is terrible. This person is, you know, wonderful yeah. um, to the extremes. But you can see with Busman's honeymoon, where Lord Peter again has to confront that he made decisions about what he saw, what he realized, what he concluded, and the evidence that he found, and having to make the decision because of his own moral code. You don't take life unnecessarily Mm. and probably because of the war and the decisions that he had to make there where life is lost Mm -hmm. and often in huge numbers so that, um, you know, when the man has to go to the gallows, he feels it very, very, very deeply. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Harriet is prepared as part of you know, the unspoken part, I guess, of the marriage vows, you know, in sickness and in health, and in this particular case, uh, mental health and Mm -hmm. and mental well-being because of the things that he saw and how that's kind of informed how he looks at the world now. Mm -hmm. But um, Dorothy Sayers is just a wicked writer, Mm -hmm. and I love Murder Must Advertise because she really drew upon you know, some of her, her own knowledge experience. and experience yeah, there. Yeah. But one of the things, and I can't remember if it was Gaudy Knight or uh, Havis Carcass, but Harriet is reflecting on Peter's persistence mm. and how she's determined, you know, and Havis Carcass, she goes on a holiday so she can escape Get all away from him, yeah. The notoriety <laughs> yeah, as yeah. well, because even though the judge is, he said at the end, you know, I release you without a stain upon your character. But it's but, still there in the public perception. Absolutely. Yeah. And as a scarlet woman, because, mm-hmm. you know, she had lived with a man and then refused his offer of marriage yeah, that would have yeah. made her legitimate, you know, a tainted but legitimate she talks about him how you know it was really irritating Mm. you know that he walked in and out of her mind as if it was his own oh i love that he walked in and out of her mind as if it was his own flat it's such a great line yeah and and yeah he understands her so well and yet until later in the books i don't think he understands her as well as he thinks he does but maybe i'll put a pin in that and come back to it because i think that the progress of that love affair is so interesting over those four books but i want to go back to something you said earlier about the 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 grayness the non-black and whiteness of because there are a lot of sympathetic murderers in these in these novels um and you know people who do things out of des who, who kill somebody out of desperation um or who who are yeah who are complex characters maybe they did this terrible thing but they're also admirable in other ways and i think that that complexity really comes through one of the things i mentioned when when we did the last episode uh, about murder must advertise is how often the killers in these books in the in the books where they're, they're I mean there's they're murder mysteries but there's a couple of them where there's not even actually a murder it may be an accidental death that that somebody caused but quite often the people who killed somebody or caused somebody's death aren't actually brought to justice you know they are brought to a kind of justice but you know lord peter does sometimes he i think at least once suggests that the murderer might like to kill themselves rather than facing a trial. 
another murderer, he basically allows them to be killed by someone else in a way that makes it look like an accident. He he seems to try to give people, you know, he, not that he lets them off, but that he sometimes lets them take what might be perceived as an easier way out. Well, you could say it like that, or you could say he's giving them the opportunity to do the right thing, mm, to yes. right the wrongs that they have yeah. committed. And, you know, Nick and I, my child, had this very interesting conversation about the end of Breaking Bad, and I only mm. saw the last episode. And to be fair, I haven't seen any of Breaking Bad, so you can well, tell me anything you want Well, there's a very interesting scene of how, or a series of scenes, where the main character, Walter White, is kind of making reparations to the people he harmed Mm -hmm. but they don't know it Hmm. so can you we had this conversation about could you be redeemed if no one knew that that you you had Mm. been the one correcting you know your previous um, errors and malfeasance and Mm -hmm. illegal deeds so that you know for sayers to do that i think you know to look at what happened between the first world war and the second and how there was this whole shift Mm. about how you viewed the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, post-1918, you couldn't see the world in the same way, and there was a different order to things Mm. and a different way to run things, Mm -hmm. and the kinds of expectations you had about doing the right thing, um, and that distance between other people's perceptions of what the right thing was. Mm. To me, she was kind of digging into that a little oh, yeah, bit. I but think I think so. in Lord Peter's world, you know, if you had the opportunity to take a very difficult way mm-hmm. to redeem yourself or at least to atone, mm-hmm. he, I think, was someone who thought it would be sporting or fair mm. to allow people to take that opportunity. Yes, yeah. And if they did not, well, then the consequences would be mm-hmm. that the other form of justice would prevail. Yeah. And of course, it was the death penalty in those days. So, yeah. you know, if Lord Peters fingered you as the guilty person, you're going to end up dead anyway, because it's not, you know, but... Uh, yeah, I think that one of the most interesting examples of that, and I, I won't spoil it to the extent of saying who it is for people who haven't read the books, but um, in The Unpleasantness of the Bologna Club, he allows, that's that's the one where he quite explicitly suggests yep. to the killer, look, I know you did this, maybe you'll want to take the gentleman's way out, but he also says, before you do that, I want you to write a full confession because otherwise suspicion is going to fall on this other person and I need you to clearly put down in writing that you did it and the reasons why so that everybody knows that this other person is cleared. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about with the idea of making reparations, that obviously not all of of his uh, killers in the books get to do that, but he does look at, he seems to look at justice in a bigger picture. Well, you know, know, if you look at Clouds of Witness, his older brother is accused and stands in the dock Mm -hmm. on charges of murder. And um, while perhaps some bits of evidence suggest that he might have done it, you know, Lord Peter actually wants to find who really did the deed Mm -hmm. because that's the extra insult. You know, not only is someone dead at somebody else's hand, but now somebody else is going to be blamed. So that lack of accountability, Mm -hmm. I think, is really critical. And, you know, with Strong Poison, you see that because and that's where you see in the novels the shift Mm -hmm. of, you know, yes, I want justice because it's terrible to kill somebody else. Um, But then it's you know, how dare you cast blame or create circumstances because of, you know, bias and social stigma that will assume that the fallen woman is to blame Mm -hmm. because now she's been rejected. And of course, poison and revenge are what, you know, why women kill. Yeah. But he's really driven Mm -hmm. by his passion for her. You know, he hires the best Defense, I think mm-hmm. the funny name. Sir Impy Biggs? Impy Biggs. Is it Sir Impy Biggs? Yes. I know. Love the lawyer, Sir Impy Biggs. And so you see that for him, that accountability, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's one thing to say that, you know, you've killed someone. And then, you know, but if, before you do the gentlemanly thing, you know, make sure nobody else gets blamed. Because yes. that's just not happening. Yeah. And the same thing really comes out because he just knows that she didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Why, how, he's not yet 
clear mm-hmm. and the other people around him are worried yeah that he's chasing after just led by heart as opposed to his intellect mm-hmm. which they all have recognized is mm-hmm. considerable that that novel in fact just on the face of it as a mystery Mm. is also really well plotted because yes, there's so yeah. many layers which is why I think you know the murder is held to account with such diligence mm-hmm. because there were a lot of moving parts there. Yes, yeah, for sure. And and speaking to of character development in Strong Poison, that determination that he wants to not just to get Harriet off, but to absolutely solve the mystery and find out who really did it. That's kind of what leads to a bit of a rift between him and Charles, his policeman best friend and now brother-in-law because Charles is like no it's enough to just muddy the case so that you know we can just get her off with not guilty and uh, you know that that that's good enough and Peter's like no we have to absolutely prove that someone else did it because I want her released without a stain against her name and 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 of course that is eventually what happens but it's a very you know, from Parker's perspective, you can see that's kind of an unrealistic goal. This is a murder that happened months and months and months before the trial, and finding any piece of evidence to prove who did it uh, is uh, is is going to be a huge effort. But of course, Lord Peter is up to it. Well, and you know, he's he's inspired, yes, by a passion he feels, and you know, while he is someone who does feel things very strongly, there isn't a whole lot throughout the early books of any meaningful relationships. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he has cultivated, I think because he felt things so deeply, and that's how Dorothy Sayers created mm-hmm. the character, that he also fosters very purposefully uh, a flighty, superficial, yes, yeah. social butterfly persona, mm-hmm. and which he serves to diffuse and deflect and mm-hmm. to mislead other <laughs> miscreants. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I often wonder if some of that disbelief, not just because the murder happened months ago, but mm-hmm. it's like, dude, you know, yeah, we know you're smart, but like, you're a little bit of a doofus sometimes. Yeah, for sure. But that's that's also, you know, it's not just, just an aid in detection. It's his personal almost his armor against getting hurt is to have that very superficial, you know, uh, attitude and and. and almost ironic stance towards everything and and to really allow him so because he, part of his backstory which is before the, the the time of the novel was that he did fall head over heels in love when he was a young man and got his heart broken when she married someone else and he really seems to have tried to although he has a lot of love affairs uh, which are almost always off stage in the books like they 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 don't really play out in the pages of the books but but you know he's had women uh, but they all seem to have been kept on a very superficial level until Strong Poison when he meets Harriet. And that, I think, is, is a good you know time to move into talking about that her character and that relationship uh, between the two of them as it plays out. So I've already said, I think, you know, culminating in Gaudy Night, but, but beginning back in Strong Poison, it's my favorite love story in any form, in any, you know, in any fiction. Uh, I just love the whole, the two characters and the whole progress of how their relationship plays out. But I, I mean, I want to hear what you think of it. Well, you think about the story that, you know, she was the daughter of a vicar, came from, you know, reduced or limited circumstances. He's a lord, has, you know, vast sums, even if he's not the duke, he still mm-hmm. has pots of money. And, you know, he has a past in, in terms of his mental health, because again, you know, while people talked about shell shock in those days, it really wasn't done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might have the dotty elderly uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was so little understanding of it. Exactly. So that, you know, you didn't present it uh, publicly, uh, which is now a good thing that we're more, more open about it. But he has his doubts because he knows that he has, and I wouldn't characterize it as a weakness, but he knows that there are times when he's not as strong as he thinks he ought to be. Mm-hmm. And he's, I think, shocked mm-hmm. at how strongly attracted he is to this woman oh, who's yes, unlike yeah. anyone. You know, mm-hmm. she's a blue stocking. She has her M.A. Uh, you know, she's she not writes, classically beautiful. Yeah, she writes books, and he's very disconcerted that he wants this relationship, mm-hmm. which parallels also some of the dissonance of Lady Mary and 
her policeman. Yeah. But with Harriet, you know, she has been so used to being independent and mm-hmm. so used to uh, looking after herself and then to have this relationship where, you know, the guy was really an absolute tosser. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. sorry that he died, but I mean, you know, he wasn't. I'm not very sad. One thing, one of the great things about Strong Boys is nobody's that sorry that Philip Boys is dead. He's it's, a very unsympathetic murder victim. So, yes, yeah. you know, it's sort of like no great loss and, yeah. and we're, we're not going to be too unkind because, you know, we don't want people going out murdering people <laughs> willy-nilly, but still. Yeah. No great loss and let's go. And he really was not nice mm-hmm. and to kind of impose, which I think looking at the time, the idea that you would impose and direct and constrict and command a mm-hmm. certain kind of behavior so that, you know, persist, 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 wear away um, her defenses so that mm-hmm. she says, fine, I'll live with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And even though knowing at that time that is still something that's quite shameful and shocking. Um, and then for him to turn around and say, well, yeah, okay, I'll marry you. Now that you've like, proven that you love me enough. Yeah, and then she rejects it. Then, which, which is, you know, you're sort of sitting there saying like, yeah, good for you, Harry. <laughs> you, you know, some backbone there. And also recognizing that, you know, she had lost some of her strength. And then being afraid mm-hmm. because... Peter is a dominating personality. He you is, know, because yeah. he's a very strong personality, easy to get overwhelmed by. Yeah, and even though he may be kind and and sensitive, mm-hmm. he's still a lord. He mm-hmm. still has servants. He's still used to telling people what to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, Harriet, I think, is a little bit concerned. How equal? Yeah, will I... the relationship be? Um, even though she makes a good coin, mm-hmm. purport from what the books say uh, as a detective yeah. novelist which again is another shocking thing yeah you know so now she's she's lived with a man she's a mystery novelist so she you know researches things like poisons yes. already that's Unwomanly very suspect things, yeah. and and now she's actually you know accused of murder well mm-hmm. you know there's nothing else that she can do now she's yeah. totally lost in society standing and i think she also doesn't want to feel beholden mm-hmm. because of the work that peter has done to remove Yes. Yeah, and and she says both in Have His Carcass and and in Gaudy Night that the gratitude is such a huge burden and such a bad basis to start a relationship on that you're you you literally in her case she literally owes him her life. How can it ever be an equal relationship? Yeah, what could you do in exchange? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So it's uh, it's an interesting thing, but also what I really liked about Gaudy Night was the idea of looking at the choices that women make, mm, yes. looking at the choices women, certain women, were allowed to make, mm-hmm. why if you made one kind of choice, that was okay, um, but if you made another kind of choice, it was not. When we th- I think of when they first meet, and this is, I think, one of the things that Sayers does so well, and it's really her growth as a writer, along with Lord Peters and Harriet's growth as characters. When they first meet in, in Strong Poison, I mean, it's almost cartoonish level of love at first sight. He, he goes into court to see this, this high-profile trial. He sees her giving testimony, you know, in in the trial, her own trial for murder, immediately falls in love with her before he's even met her. And then, you know, comes into the, the jail, has a, an interview with her, and is like, I'm going to get you off. I'm going to prove your innocence. I'm going to set you free. And by the way, will you marry me? And her reaction is so great because she is really enjoying his company until he says that. And she's like, oh, you're just... You're just another of them, you know, men who are are thrilled by the idea of marrying a t- notorious woman. And although he truly does love her, it's interesting because in that book, and even to some extent, I think, in Have His Carcass, he is being very high-handed, being very entitled, which, you know, he's literally entitled. He's, he's a lord. And he, he's always been able to to get most of what he wants in life quite easily so he does kind of come up with the, into the with this assumption that oh this woman is obviously now that i've fallen in love with her she's going to fall in love with me and marry me and she doesn't it's something like a five-year span in which they are yep. friends and he is courting her and she is trying to put him off but as one of her a friend of hers points out you never completely put him off so fully that he goes away you always kind of keep that possibility open because even though she is attracted to him she has as you said all these doubts about can this ever be a truly 
equal relationship or is it always going to be, you know, she going to be burdened by this tremendous burden of gratitude? Well, and you think about she's just come come out of a relationship where she was treated mm-hmm. in a very high-handed way, yeah. where her desires, her wishes, her views, her values uh, were dismissed, you know, and so even if you're thinking like, oh my God, I could hang, yeah. you know, who's this dude who's professing love and coming mm-hmm. in and saying, I'll do this and I'll do that. It's like, you know... I just had someone like that, not interested anymore. Yes, exactly. And Peter, although much more attractive than Philip Boyce, is really doing the same thing, coming in in this very high-handed way and saying, here's what I want from you, and, and you know, of course you'll fall in love with me and marry me. I think this is why I love Gaudy Nights so much, because it makes all this... And I know a lot of people don't like Gaudy Night because it's, like, too wordy and there's too much in Harriet's own head rather than actually solving the mystery. The mystery is interesting in Gaudy Night, but it's really not the main point. Most of it is her working out, you know, can I actually be in a relationship with a man where we are anything like equals? It's all set against the backdrop of a women's college in Oxford uh, where she is, as you said, she's exploring the different types of options available to women. And most of these intellectual women you know, they pursued that life, but marriage and children then are not an option for them. They're expected to, you know, to to remain single if they're scholars. Um, So she, yeah, there's a lot of really explicit and overt, both in Harriet's head and in her conversations with the other women, and then in her conversations with Peter, actually laying all this stuff out and saying, hey, here are all the things I'm afraid of. Here are all the things that are holding me back from this relationship. Am I going to be able to overcome them? Are we actually going to to be able to make a, a, a working relationship out of this? And I think when you read the book and you see her thought processes and trying to make sense, because the conversation she has with the Don and mm-hmm. who makes her think yeah. more deeply. And, you know, when there's that scene where the gift mm. that she accepts is smashed to pieces... And she realizes her her regret, mm-hmm. what this loss means. Um, and not so much that, oh, you know, I was grateful for the gift or whatever, but that she had actually accepted something yeah. without any strings mm-hmm. and saw it as a, a symbol because chess is a game of strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and he, gi- he gives her, for anyone who hasn't read the book... Harriet has never let Lord Peter give her a gift because she already feels so burdened by gratitude and she lets allows him to buy her this beautiful antique ivory chess set that she wants and it's a huge step in their relationship that she's willing to accept a gift from him. And, you know, thinking about the time, it's an antique, it's mm-hmm. probably ivory, you know, yeah. and um, hand-carved, so it's obviously not a trivial item. No. You no. know. Uh, but you were saying because chess is a game of, of strategy. That... She starts thinking, I think, you know, she and I often did this when I was in university. I treated them as real people. Um, (laughs) But it it was very curious to me because the chess set as a game of strategy, she's trying to think Mm -hmm. her way to a rational place, Mm -hmm. whereas Peter was all emotion. Yeah. You know, so he was someone whose intellect often governed. But in this relationship, it's all emotion. And presumably the flip side was that she allowed emotion to rule her in her relationship with the poet. Mm -hmm. Um, And now she's trying to be extremely logical Mm -hmm. and think about all the possible consequences. And if I do this, if I accept this gift, am I beholden even more? Yes. Um, And so for her to suddenly see, you know, a gift is just a gift is just a gift Mm -hmm. in this particular instance. So that... That, to me, marks a significant change in Mm. the relationship where she realizes relationships aren't a balance sheet where Mm. you've got pluses and minuses and debts and, you know, things that you owe and things that you've repaid. Um, And that, to me, when she starts to realize they actually, even though they're unequal socially, Mm-hmm. probably unequal materially in terms mm-hmm. of finance. Oh, yeah, he's so much richer than she is, yeah. As two people wanting to pursue the relationship um, and to be respectful mm-hmm. as well as passionate about each other, that there needs to be less of worrying about the scales mm-hmm. and more about what's actually being measured mm-hmm. um, in the sense of 
what's the priority here? Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, all of Gaudy Night, I think, particularly, is, is really the process of her realizing that Peter actually does respect her as an equal. And again, they're not equal in social status or in money, but he respects her as an intellectual equal and as someone who is not just going to be his wife. She's going to continue to be herself, Harriet Vane, the mystery novelist, even after they're married. There's a common criticism directed against Dorothy Sayers that she fell in love with her own character and then created Harriet Vane as a character very much like herself, a woman with an Oxford education who wrote mystery novels, uh, for him to marry. And I think she, she pushed back against that image a lot herself. But I do think there's probably an element as there is in most romances of wish fulfillment, of, of saying, you know, maybe this is the kind of relationship she would have liked to have uh, and maybe didn't have in, in her own eventual marriage. Uh, so that's uh, that's interesting. But the other thing that I think is great uh, in Gaudy Night that I wanted to touch on too, talking about how sort of high-handed and entitled Lord Peter is when he first proposes to her in Strong Poison, is a in the end of Gaudy Night, he apologizes for that behavior. And this is where the character development comes in, too. Like, he says, I was an ass to you when I first met. I just, I didn't take into account how traumatized you were. I didn't take into account what you'd been through. I just came in and proposed to you and assumed that you would fall in love with me. And it's taken all these five years for me to realize that I can't just demand your love. And, you know, to me, the the... The romantic trope of a man who relentlessly pursues a woman, even when she says, no, 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 I don't want you, I don't want to marry you, it's so glorified in our culture, and I mean our culture going back hundreds of years in in romance, um, that it's really unusual, I think, to read a romantic novel in which the hero says, oh yeah, actually, I shouldn't have done that. I was I was way too pushy. I was out of line. Those that was wrong for me to behave in that way. And for him to have that level of of self-awareness says a lot about how he's grown as a character. Well, I think, you know, going back to the earlier themes around how he lets a few of the murderers get away, it's the way he holds accountability. And I mm. think what he sees in Gaudy Night, and presumably that's the background because mm-hmm. we don't get a lot of his interior no uh, yeah. monologues the way we do Harriet, but he ha- he realizes he has to be accountable for his behavior and how it was received, mm-hmm. and I think that's what makes Gaudy Night as a romantic mystery or mysterious romance, depending <laughs> on how you want to define it, probably most appealing because it it pushes against that pursuit mm-hmm. trope that yeah. we have. Um, it pushes against the idea that I'll just keep wearing you down till you say yes mm-hmm. because there was that kind of disturbing echo with you yes, know, uh, with Philip's pursuit level, yeah. but um, at the same time there are these other things where he shows that he might have some of those behaviors but those aren't necessarily his values mm. that he realizes that with Harriet he has to be more of who he is truly Mm-hmm. and not mask and not hide behind the Lord Peter uh, who likes wine and fast cars um, and funky books of <laughs> antiquity versus, you know, the flippant dabbler and detective and mm-hmm. messing about with people's lives. So that's the other thing that I think with Harriet and Lord Peter's story is that they're able to show their true selves. Yes. And to not be afraid to take that risk. And that's why, um, to me, the end of uh, Gaudy Night, you know, and a lot of people talk about Dorothy Sayers showing off her Latin and, you know, kowtowing to perhaps a more intellectual audience. I just think, you know, everyone has a thing that they like to do. Mm-hmm. That's not the first time there was Latin plopped into. No. I mean, there's also a discourse about which pronouns you use yes. in French <laughs> um, and how that tripped up, you know, a spy. But, um, you know, being able to show your true self mm. and to accept the other person as their true self, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what those social mores might have imposed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lord Peter being the foppish member of the elite, uh, who fell apart, you know, and had this mental collapse versus, you know, a loose woman who writes mysteries and mm-hmm. 
could, might have, possibly killed her lover. (laughs) You know, those suspicions and those aspects for both of them to see past Yes, those facades yeah, to see their true selves right. and that takes time for, for both of them and it's it, I think it's great that that the love story does unfold over several books rather than being you know tied up with a neat bow at the end of Strong Poison interesting point about the Latin at the end of Gaudy Night remember I said that I read the book when I was 16 did not know any Latin of course because unlike you know Dorothy Sayers Day we don't get a classical education now where they teach you a bit of Latin in school at the end when he proposes in Latin and she accepts which is you know has you know is very tied into this whole idea of them being at Oxford and both respecting each other as scholars and as intellectual equals I honestly couldn't tell by the end of the book if she'd said yes or no because I didn't know it in Latin so I had to read Busman's Honeymoon next to just make sure that oh okay they actually did they actually do get married because I was a little surely you know it's going to have a happy ending but there was so much uncertainty even leading up to it you know her self-questioning goes almost right up to the moment where he proposes to her and I was like I, I need to read the next book just to make absolutely sure since I do not know the Latin that she did in fact say yes yeah. uh, but again I think that's a real mark of how how complex the characterization and how believable it is that uh, it was it, it never felt like a foregone conclusion to me that they would end up together that you know I felt like yeah she could she could reject this guy and say no I'd rather be an independent single woman novelist but it's much more satisfying of course that they do get married oh absolutely and I, I think for her it was that she had been so strong for so mm-hmm. long because there's you know, there's a couple of points in Strong Poison where you, you get to see her falter and, you know, start to encompass the incredibly serious situation that she's in. Not mm-hmm. that she ever underplayed it, but, you know, it's it's one thing to kind of think about it in the abstract. It's another yeah. to be sitting in a cell, and realize, you know, realizing yeah. what could happen. And so she has this very strong, almost unemotionless this sort of an emotionless, you know, unattached view mm-hmm. of her circumstance because that's how she had to keep herself together. Mm-hmm. And then to see the murderer or the attempted murderer in Gaudy Night mm-hmm. be totally ruled by passion for another and mm-hmm. the injustice that she perceived to have happened, that um, Harriet has to think a little less about always being strong in the same way to Peter shows that he can be strong and vulnerable, that mm-hmm. she also can do that with him. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite book in the series? I've already said Gaudy Night is my favorite. Do you have one favorite? Uh, I really, really, really like Gaudy Night because mm-hmm. I'm not a big romance person and I just mm-hmm. thought it was like a really cool book. But from the point of view of mystery and writing, mm-hmm. Murder Must Advertise is my absolute favorite. Really? I just love how she actually takes on um, the origins of marketing and yes. how you can sell mm-hmm. and persuade people mm-hmm. to behave in ways. And yeah. that how, in fact, the advertising business is really a legal echo of the drug yes, uh, yeah. empire that has been created. That they're trying uh, to br- bring down in exactly. the book. Exactly. Yeah, and there's just so much stuff that she writes about. And I was telling you how when the whole thing with collecting stamps for Jamie Oliver was mm-hmm. on, yes. on yeah. the go. And I kept thinking, you know, something about this is just resonating with me in a different way. And finally, it came to me. It was like when Peter comes up with the whiffling around Britain. Whiffling around Britain, yes. The, the campaign for whiff, I think Whifflets is the cigarette company. Yeah. yeah. And so they, you know, can collect uh, seashore trips. They can collect um, things for their houses. They can collect vouchers for traveling. Um, and but it was it was the frenzy about yes, everyone getting yeah. into collecting. And and I remember 
that. And in fact, I had never started collecting it until someone told me, you know, they're actually really, really good knives. Yeah. Uh, but it was that level of cultural frenzy around people collecting the Jamie Oliver Well, and then trying yeah. to trade it in the yeah. stamps so you yeah. could get them. It's like, oh, you know, Sobeys at Mount Cashel has, you know, this type today. And, you yeah. know, and yeah. then people were like, oh, well, if you can bring this in, you know, from Gander and I can give you this, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's it was, like, but the, yeah, that whole cultural thing of like creating brand loyalty by you know, coupons or, or stamps or whatever is really, you know, she, she was on the cutting edge of that working in advertising in the 1920s. And she uh, she satirizes it so well in Murder Must Advertise. It's also a really good insight in terms of how work had changed, mm. right? Because there was, um, you know, you had in, in that very highly structured class society you know your lords and ladies and you had the servant class and then you had the laboring class and the manufacturing class um, and now we see really strongly the emergence of the white collar yes class yeah, yeah. and how that was represented um, as another perhaps uh, exploration mm -hmm. of changing morals interests values in society mm. um, and it makes a very nice contrast against some of the stuff because there's that famous cricket yes. match where, you know, there and he, he just he can't not do what he knows how yeah, to do. Yeah, he can't hold back and pretend to be a worse and cricket then one player of the, than he is. Yeah. The older partner recognizes the form, the yeah. style, the superior. Yeah, oh, this is Lord Peter Wimsey because <laughs> nobody else plays cricket like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, which, you know, is, is also a very uh, specialized game. So I do quite like it in terms of all that, how it's written. Probably my least favorite because there's always a least favorite, mm -hmm. um, is uh, is the Nine Tailors. Oh, really? Now, I love the Nine Tailors. Ah. I don't know why. It was just didn't grab me hmm. in the same way. And it just depends on... I mean, I just read uh, a couple of weeks ago a book. Um, you might be familiar with the series by um, Dick Francis, which is oh, all about jockeys yeah. and stuff. And quite interesting books, mm -hmm. and I quite like reading them. And there was a couple that I wanted to reread because now his son is carrying on oh, the okay. tradition. So up before he died, he co-wrote a couple mm -hmm. with his son, and now his son has taken over. There was a lot of explanation, mm. um, you know, to take the Austin Powers Basil Exposition <laughs> underway, and that's kind of what I felt with nine with tailors. nine tailors yeah. you know i learned I, I a lot like about I, I skimmed a lot of the bell ringing stuff in that yeah. but but i like the there, there's something about the atmosphere of that one that I, have. I also have a least favorite uh, and if you look at my beautiful matched set there that I f we were saying before we started recording, I finally bought myself a matched set of all the Lord Peter Whimsey books in 2020 because I'd had an odd assortment of secondhand copies and ones I didn't have because they were from the library. When I bought a matched set, I didn't buy five red herrings. So it was like, I know that I will never reread that book again. It's it's by orders of magnitude my least favorite of the series. It's to the extent that I'm not even sure I consider it part of the series. And maybe the obsession with railway timetables time in Five Red Herrings is the same thing that you found with the bell ringing in Nine yeah. Tailors. It's like, wait, that's way too much exposition. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be my next least, next least yeah. uh, favorite because, yeah, you know, when, when writers get too much into some of those details that are very technical, let's mm, say, yes, yeah, and you're hinging your mystery or discovery on, those, on yeah. knowing those particular things, it, it seems somewhat unfair <laughs> to the reader. What we didn't talk about today, and well, we still can <laughs> quickly, are the uh, series that come after. That, that was the very next thing I was going to ask you about because when you mentioned Dick Francis' son taking over the books, I thought, gotta ask about the Jill Payton Walsh novels. I think three or four of them that continued the series with permission of the Dorothy Sayers estate. Um, what do you think about those? They're not bad. Mm, that's exactly what you I know? think. They're not bad. They're not obviously at the quality mm -hmm. of Dorothy Sayers because, you know, she had a brilliant mind and she had a way with words and mm. she was really, really good at plotting, um, notwithstanding her obsession about times tables yeah. and <laughs> bell changing ringers, etc. But if you want to sort of get into that period, mm -hmm. 
they're 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 okay. Yeah, right? I think I think it's interesting. I think she does a decent job of continuing the story. Of course, with the first two, she had some of Sayers' own material to go on, and then she was kind of off on her own. But I, the reason I would never, I don't own copies and wouldn't reread the Jill Payton Walsh ones. It's not you know that I'm opposed to it or think that it's wrong for another writer to to have taken it over. The pleasure of Sayers' writing is so much in her language, both in the narration and in the characters' dialogue. Nobody talks like Lord Peter talks, and you know when. Harriet says to him when when he first is first getting to know her, if uh, if anyone ever does marry you, it'll be for the sheer pleasure of hearing you talk piffle, uh, and he talks piffle so very well, and and Jill Payton Walsh attempted it but didn't capture that, and I'm not sure any other writer could, and I think there are you know I, I thought about this like why do I view those differently than for example the many many different versions and spin-offs and retellings of Sherlock Holmes, many of which I think are excellent and I really, really like. But I don't think there's any other character, maybe in fiction, certainly not in mystery fiction, where the writer's style of writing is so intimately linked to how we perceive the characters. Yes. You know, it's it's that's exactly it. I mean, when you look at the spin-offs of Sherlock Holmes and, and a series that I've been enjoying um, by Sherry Thomas about Charlotte Holmes and who's this very bright woman who needs to make her way in her life and mm-hmm. invents an older sickly brother named Sherlock and who helps solve mysteries and stuff. Um, it's because the most successful borrow from Conan Doyle mm-hmm. But they are their own books entirely. Yes, yeah. You know, so you've got Enola Holmes, who's supposed to be the younger sister. Yes. And the have you read the Laurie King ones, the Mary Russell? Was, Which is mostly about Mary Russell. Yes, yeah. Right? Yeah, you know, Sherlock thing. is there. But he's kind of a background character almost. And, yeah. you know, and there's a huge evolution throughout mm-hmm. the whole arc of those books. There's one by the basketball player whose name I've forgotten. It's, it's linked to the older brother mm-hmm. of Sherlock Mycroft, Holmes, yeah, Mycroft. Yeah. And there's a couple of others. There's someone who actually focused on Irene Adler. Yes, yeah. There were another couple that looked at younger homes mm-hmm. versus older homes, even movie treatments. Yes, and even the TV adaptations, like BBC Sherlock with Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch. And for, I love that. And then for years, I wouldn't watch Elementary with, uh, what's his name, Johnny Miller? Yeah. Playing the Sherlock character. And then when I watched that, I loved that too. It's a character and a world that you can do a lot of takes on and still have it work. Whereas I feel like diff- there are so few adaptations and takes on Lord Peter Whimsey, and even the continuation novels don't work as well because I think, yeah, it's, it's Sayer's voice. So much of what works about those novels yeah, is, is her because voice. Because Conan Doyle, he wrote a good mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, there were good plots. I mean, some of them were a bit weird. Um, some of them were, you know, quite deep mm-hmm. and and strange you know the hound of baskerville still mm-hmm. gives me the willies but you can take that concept of the smart guy figuring things out who's somewhat of a misanthrope mm-hmm. um but it's not the voice yes you don't right? need conan doyle's voice to be telling that story or whereas that character. you need dorothy sayers yeah. you need her love of the language and trying to find the right way mm-hmm. to describe things so that you can be in there you know when the dowager duchess tells harriet you know they knew that it's like a fever breaking that he had now passed into a state of wellness when he pushed away his breakfast and asked for a plate of bacon and eggs i mean how pedestrian how ordinary and yet how momentous for the family that you know their son their brother had come back yeah. from that dark place that he had been in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the post-war. little details like that that she does so well and she gets so right. And yeah, I think that's why even the TV adaptations, the the BBC adaptations from the 80s, have you seen those? No. Like, I think Edward Petherbridge and Harriet Walter were amazing casting. They look and act like uh, Lord Peter and Harriet, but the script wasn't written by Dorothy Sayers, and it doesn't ha- it doesn't feel like Sayers. They don't the characters don't feel like themselves because the language is not there, and that's kind of the way I feel about the Jill Payton Walsh yeah. books too. There, it maybe it's good fanfic, but they're not the characters aren't themselves. It's a really good way to describe it. Actually, mm-hmm. it's probably very high quality mm-hmm. fanfic because she does remain true to the characters and their personalities, uh, but without the voice of Dorothy Sayers, Mm. the emotional core, Mm. in some ways, is 
still somewhat hollow, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's, I don't know if you this is true for you, it certainly is for me, but as someone who, who rereads the books a lot, I think you might say the same. That's what makes them so rereadable. Because, I mean, in theory, a mystery novel shouldn't be endlessly rereadable. I have a bad memory for mysteries, so I can come back to a mystery three or four years later, read it and not remember who done it and get the pleasure of, of solving the mystery all over again. But with these, once I've read them three or four times, yeah, like when I pick up the Nine Tailors or have his carcass or whatever, I remember who did it, why they did it, how they did it, and how the mystery is solved. So I'm clearly not reading it for plot anymore. I think I'm reading it for character and for language. That's what keeps me and, coming back. you know, there's these little bits that pop up. You know, there's a bunch of short stories featuring his nephew, mm. one of Lady Mary's, or maybe it's Gerald's boy. I think it might be Gerald's boy. And who picks out a book mm-hmm. because yes. it has dragons. And then there's a whole mystery with that. And then there's another one where a friend persuades Lord Peter to talk to the daughter of this Latin scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, and they discover it's actually a crossword. Oh, yes. And, yeah. you know, how they get into, you know, that's really clever. Mm. It's you know, you see people inspired by the hunt for yes. the clues and trying to figure stuff out. So there's a lot of pleasure in the joy of ordinary detecting and not necessarily uncovering a murder, because mm-hmm. both of those are, are about yes, revealing yeah. certain bits of valuable uh, artifacts and stuff. But um, yeah, there's always something new that you would find, yes. but there's always something coming back to like having a great conversation with an old friend that you hadn't seen in six months. Yes, yeah. And then you think, oh, you know, that was a lot of fun. I must do that again. <laughs> they really do feel like revisiting old friends to me when I reread them, and that's why that's why I do it every so often, because I miss Lord Peter and the other characters. Oh, we've, there's so many things we haven't even had time to touch on here. Like, we had a whole hour-long conversation about the Lord Peter novels and haven't even mentioned Bunter. I know. I was just like Lord Peter's manservant Bunter, who is such a great character on his own. I used to say that uh, when I when I was young, I wanted to uh, to be Harriet Vane and marry Lord Peter because of his you know his his looks and his intelligence and his personality and the romance and his wealth and everything. And then as a middle aged woman, I wanted to marry Lord Peter so I would get Bunter because he's so efficient and he takes care of every detail of daily life. And, you oh, know, absolutely, the yeah. mundane. You know, food, laundry, picking up, dropping off deliveries, you know, making sure the wine is looked after. It's perfect. But I think, you know, for listeners of today, you know, the beauty is in the language. It is, yeah. And how Dorothy Sayers looks at a world that at one point seemed very straightforward and then Mm -hmm. got knocked topsy-turvy and a whole lot of things got shifted not Mm -hmm. just between class but between men and women um, between groups of workers uh, you know all levels of society and does it in a way that's I don't find preachy it just invites you in to think and reflect Mm -hmm. on these very great changes um, and you know looking back and thinking wow I'm glad I didn't have to fight to get into university and be educated Um, and to think about some of those struggles, which I think is the other appeal about Gaudy Night, is that mm. it celebrates intellect yes. among women, and that as a smart woman, there is a lot that you bring to the table that patriarchy has deemed unworthy mm-hmm. for so long that you know now you want to <laughs> light the beacons and let's ride at dawn. <laughs> Really, it is. I mean, there, there's definitely an inspirational factor in reading something like Gaudy Night. And, you know, I mean, it's very trite to say, look how far we've come as women and as feminists. But, you know, because there is still so much not done and, and so many women left behind in that look how far we've come. But at the same time, yeah, like, it is. you know, if you look at reading these books from now 100 years ago uh, and realizing, you know, the world that, that Sayers was living in and writing about, it is it is kind of, uh, it's certainly worth worth that moment of reflection. Definitely one of my favorites, and I'll never let go of my copies. They're <laughs> starting to fall apart. The mm-hmm. inside is on that, you know, poor, I should probably invest in, in the same edition <laughs> as you have, because mine are these old paperbacks mm. where the paper has yellowed. Yes, yeah. Well, the ones I bought were, it was a, a new release of trade paperbacks, which is my favorite format for books. I find the hardcovers too bulky and awkward, but, you know, the cheap mass market paperbacks, like you said, they do fall apart. So I got rid of my old hodgepodge collection of, of different editions when I got these ones, except I kept my old copy of Gaudy Night, because even though the pages are falling out, just the 
spine of it, I can look at it and think about how many times I've read it and how it's spoken to me differently at different different phases in my life. So it's, uh, yeah, there, there's there's a real pleasure in old books that you've reread over and over. Oh, absolutely. I have to share, the last time I read Gaudy Night, I did not want to stop reading, but it was late at night and I was getting tired. And what do I do? I'm reading the chapter and I'm trying to pinch open the letters <laughs> to make them bigger. And then I realized, oh, it's a paperback, Martha. It's not the e-reader <laughs> version. Because sometimes if I'm traveling, I'll yeah. borrow some from the library oh, so yeah, I have yeah. something to, to read on the plane or wherever. I kept thinking, yeah, okay. That's also a sign I should get my eyes yeah. checked because the print is getting to be too small. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the older I get, the more I appreciate the uh, increased font function on an ebook for sure. But, uh, yeah, there's some books I have to have the treasured paper copies of, and these are definitely among them. Was there anything else you wanted to say about any of these books that we did not get to? I really liked how they described her wedding dress and Busman's honeymoon. Oh, my goodness, yes. It was the first time I'd ever thought of somebody not wearing white at yes. a wedding, and she wore gold. Cloth brocade. of gold, yes. Oh, my goodness. There's... Um in a Lord Peter Whimsey fan group that I'm on on Facebook. I don't know if you're on it or not, but people are always posting pictures of 1930s gowns that they think might look like Harriet's wedding gown and see if it matches the description. So don't know if Sayers had a particular gown in mind, but yeah, it's just one more example of how vivid her descriptions are and how you feel like you've seen Harriet in that gown in Busman's Honeymoon. Yeah. Well, and you think about the description in Strong Poison. Know, where she stood in the dock with this red dress that was, mm. you know, wine colored or something. And it's again, it's I think it's the descriptions and you know, we could go in a lot more detail. Oh yeah. We could, um, we could do a the whole series about these. Yeah. And, you know, how they set up different events mm -hmm. and then how Sayers sets the scene and just makes it all so plausible, mm -hmm. as even though you realize you're reading a mystery. Yeah, but it does. It, it feels like such a real world that you're that you're visiting. Yeah. But I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite mysteries because I read a lot of mysteries. I quite like the tidy justice mm. that comes with the solution and taking bringing people to account. I don't like mysteries where people you know, fade off into the distance oh, yeah, yeah. and get away that, with you it. You want that satisfying resolution for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Well, this has been great for me because the last two episodes I did with, with people who hadn't read any of the Lord Peter Whimsey Mysteries, which is a great uh, a great perspective, but it is wonderful to wrap up this mini-series by sitting down and talking to someone who loves them and has reread them as much as, as I do. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Trudy. That wraps up my conversation with Martha Musichka about the Lord Peter Whimsey novels by Dorothy L. Sayers. And it also wraps up my little mini-series on those novels. For the past three episodes, I've been celebrating 100 years of Lord Peter Whimsey by talking to guests about those books, introducing new readers to them, and uh, then, of course, just celebrating our love of them in this episode with Martha. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you've never read the Lord Peter Whimsey novels, maybe something in this episode or this series of episodes has encouraged you to check them out. As always, if you go to my website, TrudyMorganCole.com, and follow the podcast link. It'll take you to a page where you can choose the show notes for this episode and see all the books that we've discussed linked there because as always the conversation is wide ranging and we did uh, hit on a few other topics than just the Lord Peter Whimsey novels. I'll be back again next month with another episode uh, not about Lord Peter Whimsey but I'm going to be talking to a couple of guests about a book that we all read and, uh, and enjoyed and had some thoughts on. So tune in again next month for another episode and until then read a good book and build your your shelf esteem. <laughs> <laughs>